Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host with the most, or at least some of what you need. I'm Neil Pollack, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a great end of August, beginning of September show for you. Uh, It's football season. And Netflix has a series of football documentaries that has released in the last month. Robert Dean will be here to talk about the documentaries and do a sort of a NFL preview show. He's a little more high on the Chicago Bears than he should be, but he knows a lot about football, and I know enough about football to talk to him about it. In addition, we're going to talk to Matthew Ehrlich about the new season of And Just Like That, which has nothing to do with football. It is a sequel series to Sex and the City recently completed its second season on Max. But first, we're going to talk to Daniel Cohen about what I consider to be one of the best TV shows of the year. It's a three-part documentary on Max called Telemarketers, and it is a expose of the phone scam industry, but it's so much more than that, and Daniel and I will be here to sell it to you right after these important musical notes. A happy late summer surprise crossed my TV transom this uh, the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's called Telemarketers, and it's airing on Max, which used to be HBO Max, which used to be HBO. And it is a three-part documentary series exposing fraud uh, in the telemarketing industry, which, you know, sounds fine. But, I mean, it is just, it is absolutely one of the most riveting, funniest and best shows I've, I've seen in a long time. And it's also an incredible piece of investigative journalism. And most of the action in telemarketers takes place in New Jersey. So I was trying to think, like, who do I know on the East Coast who, A, you know, would be familiar with some of these types of people, and B, could probably watch the show. And the answer uh, to both those questions was Daniel Cohen. And Daniel, our frequent contributor, is here to talk to me about telemarketers. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm calling on behalf of the Connecticut Fraternal Order of Police. And I want wonder if I could put you down for a gold level membership for just $55. You can help the uh, you can help uh, families in need uh, for fallen police officers. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, please send me that decal so I can show my uh, my support to the boys in blue. We'll get protection. It'll give you automatic protection. All right. So that's just kind of the wrap that some of these telemarketers take. Because uh, this show is, is not just about people trying to sell stuff over the phone. It's about scam telemarketing uh, companies that use the cover of police unions in order to make millions upon millions of dollars for the company founders. But that's not what even makes the show good. It's really the two main characters, right? Like, uh, there's this documentary filmmaker named Sam Lipman Stern, who uh, very very different than Sam Bankman Freed, wouldn't you say? <laughs> You know what? The only thing would make this show better was if Sam Bankman Freed was making it. Right. But I mean, Sam Lipman Stern is just kind of like a working class Jewish schmo uh, from New Jersey, kind of a, you know, teenage fuck up. Uh, what I love is that he becomes a documentary filmmaker. But in the third episode, when you see him in Los Angeles, he's he's 45 years old and bald. Yeah. And he's shooting weddings and foot fetish videos. It's not like. <laughs> <laughs> He's not like super successful. So basically the show starts with, the show takes place, uses footage over 20 years and it starts off with uh, Sam uh, as a teenager going to work for this sleazy uh, company 
called the Civic Development Group uh, in, in, I guess, is an exurban New Jersey. And uh, he shoots all this, like, crazy footage of all these people doing drugs at their desk and, like, you know, like, giving each other blowjobs in the bathroom and doing uh, criminals. Yes. Um, don't forget the don't forget the guy who sold pit bull puppies at his desk. Yeah, from his desk. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's just it's a it's a madhouse. And he put he put some of these videos. They were like early YouTube sensations. They're 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 just these incredibly crazy, down and dirty videos of just like the wackiest, grimiest workplace you've ever seen. But the show, to its credit, like evolves way past that and becomes a searing piece of investigative journalism. And the main character isn't even Sam Lipman Stern. It's this guy named Patrick J. Pespis. Yes. I could not believe that was a real person for about half the first episode. And then by the end, that person was very real. Well, very real. When you, when you, you, know, when you see Patrick, when you first see Patrick, he's literally doing heroin at his desk and nodding off and then making sales. When he, you know, he, wakes, he nods off in the middle of the call and wakes up in order to close a sale. And he was like this great telemarketing salesman. Uh, and he's a you know, big guy missing a lot of teeth. We gotta, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so my impression of him was that he looked like every carny at the state fair you've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, he just, you know, he just he's someone who you would like not uh, want to necessarily approach in conversation. But he's actually, a sort of, he has this. Um, in, he's very intelligent, and he has this strong sense of social justice. He find, he he winds up essentially being a wannabe Michael Moore for most of this, which is amazing. And he's so terrible at it when he does the interviews. The, yeah, the inter, the interview segments are badly framed and badly edited, and uh, his interview style is, shall we say, unorthodox. He's wearing sunglasses, but he gets better. He gets better as it goes on, and the, the high, you know, as their investigation proceeds, you know, he interviews people from the FTC and the FEC. He interviews Senator Richard Blumenthal. Who completely blows him off. Yeah, was, was such an asshole. And and he's so great and eloquent in that scene with with Richard Blumenthal, sort of his peak moment. And, you know, they do a really good job of exposing the corruption in this industry. They do a great job of it. Yeah, nobody who walks away from this show having seen it is ever going to forget all of this. You know what I mean? It's, it's like the next the next time you get some sort of scammy, like, automated phone call, like we always do. I mean, nowadays it's coming, as, as they get into it, it's probably coming from an AI voice on a computer. But it was coming, presumably, from one of these call centers, staffed, yeah, uh, yeah as we mentioned earlier, by, like, convicted murderers. Yeah, or, or, or at best, junkies. At best, yeah, yeah. Weed is probably the best you can hope for here. Yeah, and, you know, and it just, but the show, it manages to do that. And it does achieve what Michael Moore does, but the, the, um, the main characters aren't self-promoting in the same way, especially, pa I mean, well, neither of them are, are self-promoting, I don't think, but Patrick Pespis is like, he doesn't even, he doesn't even know uh, where he is half the time. He's on so many drugs. Um, and yet he's guy, he's like, he's an incredibly like faithful husband to a, you know, a, a yeah. severely ill with cancer and is like, you know, it is someone who like a lot of people would just discard, you know? Yeah. The, the, the last episode, which, shows him caring for his wife for a while and, 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 and interviews her about Patrick is kind of incredible and in that you can see like how true this dude's love is for his wife and how, you know, like you said, completely faithful he is to her. You know, she's got, she's got severe disabilities as a result of the, of her sickness. And it's just like, he loads her into the van. He loads her out of the van. He helps her up the stairs. He cooks her food. Like hell yeah, Patrick J. Pespis. 
Yeah, and you know, he takes care of her like she took care of him when he was nodding off at his desk on heroin. Right, because he was a heroin addict for 20 years, so it's like... Yeah, and even now he's still on methadone, and he's still smoking weed in the car, like, on camera. Just, just like, what are you... In Florida, I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, uh, can, can we talk about the road trip? Oh, yeah, it's so great. So episode three, basically, they're going to fly down to Florida to attend the Fraternal Order of Police convention because they managed somehow to score an interview with this guy from the Texas FOP. They discover, they, they, so they discover that the Fraternal Order of Police and the Police Benevolent Association are unions for two different kinds of cops. They're for, one is for the officers and one is for like the higher ups and they fucking hate each other. Yeah. So they managed to play that against, play the unions against each other to get this interview. And then, yeah, they, 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 they're going to fly to Florida. Go on. But, but Patrick has never flown before, and he gets cold feet in the airport, and they have to drive from New Jersey to Florida for three days. And then, and then when the, that kind of goes sort of goes south, they just they drive to Houston. It's a lot of driving. That's like more driving than like the old, old barnstorming baseball teams used to do. I mean that that that's that's just an insane amount, amount of driving. You can only only but they were. I mean, it makes it makes the movie so the the show. It's three hours basically. It makes it so visceral so realistic you know i gotta say daniel like i feel like you know it takes place over 20 years like it, it the action ends in like 2022 and it starts in 2002 something right. like that. if you wanted to put something in a time capsule to explain to people what life in america was like in the first part of the 21st century what it was really like yeah i think you could do a lot worse than showing them telemarketers yeah, for sure. I mean, there there is there, there's something about the aesthetic of New Jersey, especially. I think that that really works here. Like Pat Pespis in his uh, his his like dirty Giants starter jacket. Yeah, that hit me so hard in the heart because I live in upstate New York, and I definitely owned a, a similar Bills starter jacket as a kid. Well, you also just like it has some geographic scope. You know, it goes to California, it goes to Florida, it goes to Texas. Yeah. You see a lot of economic inequality. You see people who are winning the telemarketing game living in these nice McMansions. You see, you know, Sam and Patrick both kind of live like dogs. Their families are poor, uh, or, or at least like middle, very middle class. And uh, you just see the, the, the people struggling at the bottom. You see the people exploiting at the top. You see like old people getting, getting rooked in the middle. You know, there's a, there's just this, there's a whole range of things going on. And, and also you watch the technology evolve from like these gross, like, you know, yellowed desktop computers to like people working at home, making these calls on these like fancy laptops. I love the guy who is Patrick's main competitor um, in, in the telemarketing, the guy who's like a, literally a convicted murderer. Uh, t- uh, Tom, I think his name is. He is so evil. You know, and if someone hangs up on him, he like literally like he m- mumbles death threats. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> It's amazing. The show is amazing. You know, it's 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 a real uh, a real dark horse, but I, I think it's one of the best shows of the year. I really do. I it kind of it kind of crept out of nowhere, and I'm really happy it did. Like so, so it's a co-production of uh, uh, David Gordon Green's and Danny McBride's, and so the the first promo started to air at the end of the Righteous Gemstones, and it was like, ah. what on earth is this? Like, I'm I'm immediately interested, whatever this is, just because. I've spent a lot of my life working in offices that are, are very similar looking in New Jersey, not, not telemarketing, but right. 
you know, I've 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 certainly uh, worked in a cu- worked in a cubicle in Union, New Jersey, with some characters. Yeah, and like from that alone, I'm just like, yep. And then you see the Safdie brothers, and it's just like, all right, what a dream team of people who know exactly how to depict like the lower middle class of America. Yeah, so it's got it's got all the best producers. Uh, you could ask for for this project, and also like it's just a testament to the um, the obsession of these two guys, you know, and of uh, 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 Pat- Patrick's like you know Patrick's character, and also like of of Sam uh, Lipman Stern's just uh, ability to keep hold of of all that footage and keep it organized. Yeah, that was the other thing too. Is it's like how on earth does this guy have all those tapes logged? Like, he's, I, well, he clearly he's not a junkie. He's not, you know, he's not a, he's not like a big success or anything. Well, he is now, but he wasn't in, in, until the show came out. But he clearly like had his act together enough, you know. They they didn't quit. They never quit, even though like they took a t- literally a ten year break. Yeah, that that's that's the other thing too that's really kind of poignant about this is you get to see the passage of time um, on these characters, which I I, <clears throat> I mentioned earlier that like Lippman Stern looks completely different at the end of the movie than he did at the start, and. Patrick doesn't, which is amazing. <laughs> he has this constant, sh- constantly shifting hairstyle and facial hair configuration that's just, it's, it's riveting. It's like, where did, where did that goatee come from? Where is that, you know, it's like, how did his hair get long? Yeah, he's he's trying out different styles, which is, uh, I, again, as somebody who is often trying out, trying to grow his hair and, and failing is, hits me right there. I, I'm more of the uh, increasingly balding middle-aged. <laughs> You wear it well, Neil. Thank you. But the thing is, okay, here's the thing. They even say, you know, Sam even says, who said investigative journalism is dead? This stuff is awesome. I think this might have, yeah, these guys aren't going to be Michael Moore. Like, you know, they're not, there's no, this, this is not something that they can repeat. You know, this is lightning in a bottle that can never be caught again, but maybe it'll, it'll um, revive this idea of, you know, holding the the powerful accountable in, in this kind of funny way. I like this way more than, I mean, yeah, sure, I loved Roger and me when it came out, but, you know, Michael Moore's subsequent career has been a little ideological. So, you know, I, I what I like about this is it's, it's. I mean, I would assume that these guys vote Democrat, but it's not like hard, this is not a hard, an ideological film. This is just like... Yeah, these guys, these guys, these guys idea of a Democratic career was Bob Menendez, so... Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're Democrats pretty much just by dint of... of place of birth as opposed to like they're not this is not an ideological uh film but it is an awesome film and it is an incredible depiction of uh life in america in the 21st century and it's it's so funny and it's just it's just really gripping all the way through it's not it's not dull for a second uh, i recommend telemarketers highly and i know you do as well daniel yeah, it's 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 really superb, and it's worth checking out if you're a Max subscriber. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to spend the next hour calling uh, fixed income widows who are on the brink of death, scaring them into giving me their last twenty five dollars. I, I I mean, my heart pill money was supposed to go to heart pills, but that's a very nice story you told me about that dead patrolman from. 1991. The families of fallen officers need your help, Daniel. I'm glad we can count on you, and we'll talk to you soon. You move on because you've outgrown who you used to be. I've repurposed my kitchen. Did you know stoves aren't just for storage? Life too short not to try something new. precipice of doing something either really stupid or totally liberating. 
I don't know who you are. Is there something you're not telling me? We are all blissfully unaware when our lives are about to change. Do you? Yes, I will. And just like that, I realized you never know what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> the Sex and the City universe is still alive and well, surprisingly. Season one of And Just Like That on what was then HBO Max and is now just Max was received with universal disdain, pretty much, but they still made a season. I think it was still pretty popular because they made a season two, also received with universal disdain and, and decent ratings. Matthew Ehrlich wrote about and just like that for us on the site last week. And he, I thought he had some really interesting uh, insights into the enduring popularity of a you know declining franchise. Matthew, hello. Hello, Neil. Yeah, so I, I thought your piece was really good. Uh, and, you know, and there's some stuff in there that I wanted to discuss. You, you talked about how the original Sex in the City, which came out in the 90s, was on the surface about four... Um, you know, women in their 30s, you know, making it in 90s, swinging 90s New York. Boy, 90s New York really seems swinging by comparison to today, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah. Right? They, that was the fun time. I didn't realize it at the time, but yeah, now. <laughs> it was such a near, because that was such a contentious and dreary place. But the 90s were like, literally the gay 90s. And you talk about uh, in your piece how although the, the women were uh, front and center, that it was really kind of a gay show. There was a lot of appeal in the uh, gay community. The gays were kind of this sort of the secret sauce of the situation. It was largely written by gays. And I learned recently that actually um, one of the rules in the writer's room was that uh, any of the situations that the ladies were in had to be something that you actually experienced on a date yourself. And so um, there was a there was sort of a conjecture or there was a theory that a lot of what Samantha went through, you know, the more sexually voracious one was often usually someone some some gay experience because it all seemed a little bit too like a lot of women would watch, you know, Samantha and say, well, that's really fabulous, but I've never done that. What the hell? Right. Whereas a lot of gay men were watching the show and were like, oh, yeah, that's a Tuesday <laughs> Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So I, um, you know, I, I, I never, I never watched the show really. And I, I never thought about it from uh, that perspective, but you know, you also talk about how like they would, they would bake like, like Easter eggs into the show. Like, you know, the, the, one of the men Carrie was, was dating was, was named after a, a prominent gay porn star of the time. Eden Shaw. Yes. So, you know, that was then, you know, this is now. And as you point out in the piece, the, uh, you know, being a uh, gay white man, basically, in New York is no longer um, avant-garde. Right. And then, you know, you're no longer, um, you know, using a white woman to be your mouthpiece for whatever you need to be able to say. So all of a sudden, the character of Anthony kind of gets brought out, you know, like he used to be much more of a supporting character. And now he's kind of, in a way, considered one of the ladies. And then some other new ladies have burst onto the scene. And so it used to be kind of just these four women and these minor characters that would come in and out. And now it's this like really much larger ensemble piece and it's kind of hard to keep track of everyone. Right. Well, you mentioned too, that there's a joke that like every one of the main women now has their sort of supporting 
woman of color or even a woman of color who's kind of supporting woman of color. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you also talk about in uh, your piece, which I thought was very interesting. So sort of the whole notion of queerness has changed, right? Like being just being a, you know, a gay man can get married without much uh, criticism from in, in most parts of the country. You can adopt kids legally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Adopt kids, you know, a, a, the specter of AIDS is no, is not what it was. Uh, exactly. Thank God, back in the day. Uh, so, like, there's the whole notion of what it means to uh, be queer in society has, has changed, right? Like, now you've got, uh, you know, trans people of color is sort of the minimum bar of entry. Right, yeah. Or, you know, people who are non-binary, um, people of color, etc. And those are the people that we now um, think of as a lot more you know, exciting and, uh, you know, avant-garde and so forth. And so Sex in the City is sort of bringing that in as sort of, you know, a way to maybe, you know, whereas having the gay association was sort of, it was spicy enough in the 90s. And now there's sort of, there's a new playing field happening at the moment. On the one hand, right, like society has changed. So it's good in a sense that the show is reflecting that. Uh, on the other hand, I don't feel like, you know, from what I hear from you and other people who watch, still watch this thing, that it's as much fun to watch as it was back in the day. Well, it's it's interesting because I think when Sex and the City was on, it was just kind of part of popular culture and it was seen as a guilty pleasure. And there was a lot of complaining about it because it was sort of that show that was on that everyone was watching. And then when it got, it wasn't really canceled, right? They sort of ended things. All of a sudden, these people started to write about it as though it had been this major cultural moment. And it had been because it was about the women's friendships. It was actually, you know, a really important feminist piece. But then there was also this criticism that, you know, it was these four white women and it was unrealistic because of the money and so forth. So all of a sudden it gets this, it gets, there's sort of this institutional quality happens to it all of a sudden when it, when it goes off the air. And then also you have all these women who grew up watching it when they were little and then moving to New York city and thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to be like Carrie or Samantha or whatever. Um, and then they arrive in New York city and they're like, Oh, wait a minute. This is not what it's like. At best they're going to be like Lena Dunham and girls. And that's, that's their best case. Scenario. Well, and then Lena Dunham and girls is actually, you know, she's even said that it was my reaction to sex in the city. It yeah. was, you know, I did move to New York city and you know, here's what happened to me. Yeah. So when sex in the city comes back, it's rebooted as, and just like that, they've got all this, sense that they have to number one correct the wrongs of having an all-white cast and bring in all these people of color and what's interesting is that it's not that the people that they brought in um i think a lot of people are going oh good job they've brought in some people of color but no one sits around the next day going oh wow um i wonder how naya's date went you know like they've got their own subplots but no one really they're not in the zeitgeist they're not being discussed it's kind of like this you know, like every once in a while, um, someone criticizes McDonald's for having unhealthy food. So they introduce a salad and no one buys it. You know, it's like this, it's like this green vegetable thing that's going on. It's not in the zeitgeist at all. I was, I mentioned to my wife that I, I, we ran this piece by you and that I was talking to you about the show. And she's like, wait, there's a sex in the city show again. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It, but it's been renewed for a third season, so people are watching. Yeah, for sure. But, but it's you know that is the nature of our atomized media environment, though. Where you know no right. no, no one didn't know uh, what Sex in the City was in 1997. You know, whereas whereas you can easily um, go through your day and avoid and and just like that. Right. Exactly. But you're not avoiding it. You're you're still watching it. I'm still watching it. And, um, you know, when you asked me to write about it, I thought, oh, gosh, I'll have to watch it again. And then I'm sort of looking forward to it and wondering why. And it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And um, I just don't understand why I keep watching the show. I don't even think I even liked it when it was Sex in the City and it was originally on. And yet I still sit down and I watch it and I complain and um, help me, please. I can't. I can't. It's a snack food that you're addicted to. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't even. Don't even like the. Don't even like the powdering on the chip. Exactly. Sorry, Matt. Uh, I, I I can't help you. I I, I Matthew. I, I really. There's nothing I can do. TV is your fate. <laughs> well, thank you for allowing me to write about it. Yeah, at least at least at least there's that outlet. All right, and just like that, season two has just concluded on Max. There's going to be a season three. I will not be watching it, and Matthew Ehrlich will. Matthew, thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks. It's football season, uh, college football season, and also pro football season. And with the coming of the seasons, especially the NFL season, we're being treated to a slew of football documentaries um, on on Netflix. Also, I guess HBO Max is still doing its Hard Knock series as well, but uh, Netflix has a couple of uh, featured uh, football shows right now. There's um, Quarterback, which is a documentary series produced by Peyton Manning that kind of takes a verite life into the look of three NFL quarterbacks. This is in the style of recent shows about pro golf, and uh, about Formula One, that is sort of the new way of promoting sports through through documentary film. And then there's also a kind of a strange little uh, movie called um, Untold, the Johnny Football Story, or something like that. It's about uh, Johnny Manziel, the uh, infamous uh, college and for a short time pro quarterback uh, from about a decade ago. Robert Dean, or I'll call him Bobby on the podcast as well, wrote about both of these uh, products. Uh, for our site, and he's here today to talk to me about it. Hello, howdy, howdy to you. So yeah, so let's talk about. Let's start with actually the Johnny Manziel show. So this is like, I guess, Untold is like some sort of off-brand thirty for thirty thing that Netflix is doing because they have an opening credits sequence with a weird theme song and all that, right? Yeah, no, thirty. I mean, Untold is definitely its own thing now. Um, their goal is to be a little bit more gritty than. 30 for 30, because 30 for 30 is great, but Untold, they, like, really dive deep. Like, they just had a new one come out about the roster of the Florida Gators that won the national championship when Tim Tebow was on it. And basically, like, of a 60-person, I think it's, like, 65 people are on a football team, 40 of them got arrested, including Aaron Hernandez, who, like, you know, killed people. So they're, uh, they try to go deep on those things. That sounds juicier than this Johnny Manziel uh, show. You know, you know Johnny Manziel is, 
a real sleaze, right? And we won the Heisman Trophy as a freshman for Texas A&M and then proceeded to just go completely off the rails. And it's not like the show skims over that. There's a lot of, you know, detailing of his partying and his drug use and his arrogance and his, you know, his sort of bad boy image. But I feel like a lot of it gets channeled through an interview with Johnny Manziel. So it's like, I feel like he's kind of playing image control a little bit with the show. My friend Ashton's convinced she's from Kerrville and she's like convinced his parents paid for that because apparently he comes from money. It's not like he doesn't have his own money, obviously, but she's like, no, I'm convinced that his family paid for that to like kind of help like do damage control to like re-up him for like future endeavors. And I was like, but you may not be wrong because they definitely could have went harder on him because it's like, they're like, it's this whole like glory days of A&M thing. And then you see like the fun bad boy shit, but then you don't acknowledge really at the end where like he sucked for the Cleveland Browns. And I pointed it out in the article that he was available as a quarterback, both Dallas and Houston needed quarterbacks. And there is nothing more than this state loves of Texas than the local boy who did good. And they could have pushed him to the national spotlight because there's this story in there where apparently he went um, golfing, I think, with the GM of, the, I think it was Texas, or the Houston Texans. No, he broke clubs over his knee and threw them into the pond or whatever. I mean, what an idiot. I mean, but that's like the, that's the certificate thing of his entire existence is like he would skim by on some wave of luck after some bad thing. I mean, it's when he was signing autographs for money and different stuff like that. So realistically, he's like one of those dudes that they really were trying to make him into an anti-hero, but he's just so unlikable. I don't think it's possible because most people will look at it and be like, yeah, I don't like Dennis Rodman's an anti-hero, but Dennis Rodman still delivered for his job. And Johnny Manziel basically just like pissed away a golden career. Yeah, and, you know, it's like he's living in this nice house in Scottsdale and his family still appears to be living in this, you know, gorgeous house and, you know, the Texas Hill Country and he and his dad are golfing together. There's just a lot of privilege there that other people who have to deal with the addiction issues that Johnny Manziel did. I mean, he's clearly got a, some unresolved uh, psychological problems. You know, other people who have to deal with that shit, they don't get a documentary about them. So I, I'm just... I didn't find the story very inspiring, even though it's juicy. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that because I love football and I'm a UT fan, I, I found the Johnny football. I was living in New Orleans still at the time when all this popped off. And it's still one of those things that I was fascinated with, even even though I didn't live in Texas. Yeah, it was a great – I mean, he, he, went, he went ballistic on the field for one season – um, and, you know, and, but I think a lot of that had to do, you know, he was, he has a lot of talent, obviously, but a lot of that had to do with the system that he was put into, you know, he had the, you know, the, the, the guy who ended up going to Texas tech and like changing the offense there, you know, he was, he was the right combination of like youth and, you know, don't give a shitness combined with the right system. And it took off for him. Uh, but he just has so many personal problems and, you know, and again, like that would be a great story. Um, in a better film, but I just felt like this, this just felt like a PR effort by the Manziel family. I totally completely agree with that, but I don't think, I mean, the system thing I acknowledge, but he was good. Like Tim Tebow is one of those people you can be like, oh, well, Tim Tebow was this great quarterback with all these skills. Not really. Everybody knew that he could only work in the wildcat. 
if he was in the wildcat offense, then he was fine, but he could never, that's why he never made it anywhere in professional football because he couldn't adapt. Manziel had the power to, to the ability to adapt. He could have been great, but it's his hubris that got in the way and fucked his whole career. His hubris and some kind of clear uh, addiction, daddy issues that the show just does not ever really fully acknowledge. So anyway, it's not a great film, although, you know, I, it was still pretty, I mean, I still enjoyed the, you know, the footage and, you know, it was still kind of juicy, but it, it you know, it kind of felt like a off-brand 30 for 30 for me. Now, quarterback, on the other hand, you know, that, that's a bit of a different story. Like that is a, this is, this is a high gloss, high profile show um, about three very different kinds of characters. Uh, the, the three uh, main quarterbacks in the show are um, Patrick Mahomes, who needs no introduction, you know, the best football player of his generation, two-time Super Bowl champion. Uh, Kirk Cousins, um, who is currently quarterbacking, I believe, for the Vikings. And Marcus Mariota, who uh, you know, came out of college with a lot of uh, promise and has sort of been a bit of a journeyman. I mean, these are, you know, and the thing is, like, you w- watch the show and, like, I mean, I don't find Patrick Mahomes very interesting just because he's so successful. But, you know, these are characters that um, the show really obviously has a lot of affection for and don't have a don't seem to have a ton of personal problems. This isn't a show about uh, men and their personal problems. Right. It's about what it takes to lead an NFL team to victory. Yeah. I mean, in that quarterback was interesting in that, like they filmed it before the season and they were purposeful in who they picked, which they did a very good job of vetting the three that they did pick because Mariota has never lived up since he won because Mariota won the Heisman and he was highly touted. He was first pick when he went to Tennessee and everything. And he was always viewed as this guy because when he played for the Oregon Ducks, he was insane. And he was another one, but he had four years of really good quarterbacking. He didn't have the highlight reels and the whole flash of Johnny Manziel, but he was great. Because the thing about like with Mahomes is Mahomes was great when he came out of college. He was definitely a touted quarterback, but he became Patrick Mahomes once he got to the NFL. Like he leveled up to the challenge, yeah, which is a very interesting thing to see. And Cousins was a backup, and after Robert Griffin III got hurt, he kind of backdoored his way in, and then has been a consistent, solid force ever since. He Kirk Cousins very much reminds me of Drew Brees in that he's like this humble working class guy that puts his head down, isn't trying to be flashy, does right by the community, super religious and does this thing. Drew Brees is essentially all those things too. Yeah. Yeah. Kirk Cousins is like the uh, essence of like the lunch bucket quarterback, right? Like he, he obviously like, these are all super talented athletes, but he doesn't, you know, he's not flashy like Patrick Mahomes. Even Mariota has, is sort of like a bargain bin version of Mahomes. And in terms of their games, a lot of scrambling, a lot of like odd flips, you know, where, whereas Kirk Cousins is like your classic drop back and throw the ball running an offense efficiently kind of quarterback. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely one of the better ones still in the league. I mean, this was only last year, so it's he's still going to be relevant this year. It's going to be really interesting to see how Cousins does because he's still good and the Vikings still have a chance, but the division has changed in the sense that they were always leading it in the last like four or five years. The Vikings have consistently ran the North. And now that uh, Aaron Rodgers is going to New York, which is always a weird, when a legacy quarterback goes to a different team, it's always weird. It just didn't, I, I can't think of outside of Tom Brady and Manning, who are obviously two of the best to play of all time. Generally when a quarterback switches teams 
it doesn't work out as exactly as you expect it, which is going to be interesting. And the show doesn't, it, there's no Aaron, Aaron Rodgers is an interesting character in his own right, but there's no Aaron Rodgers in the show. You know, I felt like quarterback, it's a quality show. The quarterbacks did give unprecedented looks into their home lives. Mahomes and Mariota's home life were a little boring to me, but I, I thought that uh, my favorite parts of the show actually were Kirk Cousins at home, you know, with his, his, you know, very practical wife and they shop at Target and he wears these kind of dad clothes. And uh, he's just he's just kind of this funny, um, basic, all-American guy, you know? He's not a partier. He's got his little hidden room to, like, look at all of his accolades. Yeah, and uh, it's just, you know, he was a, he's just a funny character to me. Like, I, I, I found myself, when I was watching the show, I found myself wanting to get back to the Kirk Cousins story just because it's like Patrick Mahomes. It's like, here's a day in the life of... LeBron James or something, you know, it's like, it, it's hard to like feel super empathetic towards someone who's that successful. But I think we can all relate to the guy who's like good and does his best, but like never quite gets to the promised land. Well, I think that that's more Mariota than Cousins because Cousins is right there. Like I said, it's Mariota. I mean, he's essentially out. I think he's now he's, he's a backup for on the Eagles. So he's playing number two. He's essentially done because he's a backup now. He's not even yeah. starting. I mean, he, the thing is, like, he's he's someone who you want to have as a backup quarterback because he does have professional experience. You know, is, your, your, team, your team's not necessarily going to lose the game if the if the main guy gets hurt and Marcus Mariota comes in. But uh, regardless of that analysis, like as a show, I feel like quarterback is is kind of successful, but it also feels like a little um, it's like corporate product placement, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely on the nose of what it is. I mean, it's definitely they put it out on purpose for a certain time to get you hyped up for the football season. So I don't look at it in a way that it's self-serving, but I definitely, you know, you know what you're getting. It's like they might as well stuck McDonald's fries in a Coke there. But, I mean, it was good, interesting stuff because it's setting up for this season because those three storylines are still interesting because all those guys are still in the mix in different ways because Mariota's not out, but he, now he's a backup. And then Kirk Cousins, like I said, he's going to be fighting for his spot in the NFC because now you have Justin Fields for the Bears, and the Bears are supposed to be right there. So it's going to, he's going to be right there battling it out against the Bears, who for the first time in like 10 years. You're such a Chicago guy. The Bears are going to be right there. How many times have we heard that? The thing about the Bears, though, is they now have a legit quarterback for the first time ever, and they spent money in the offseason, and they picked up wide receivers and stuff. So the, the Bears are going to be an actual team this year. And now that Mariota's out of the, not on the Falcons anymore, Derek Carr went to the Saints. This year in football, there's a lot of interesting storylines that are going to happen. All right. This year, in, we're, I wish we were a football podcast sometimes, but we're not. But we do, we do cover these um, football documentaries. And, you know, hopefully we, if, if you're interested in football, maybe these, uh, these will get you a little hyped for, for what's to come. Uh, thank you for uh, educating me about what's going on in the NFL. I, I'm more of a baseball and basketball guy, so I kind of lose. I lose focus on football until almost until December. It's, so maybe I need to, to, to rally for opening day. It's weird. I go into, like, weird phases every year. It just kind of depends on what's going on in my life, where, like, some years I'm just completely shut out of sports. But – as of like, you know, this season, my football brain is on. So I'll be watching football. But last year, I was completely checked out. Like I in that writer world of the Venn diagram of like, 
creative person and bro, I lean on the right side of like, if left side's nerd and right side's bro, I'm on that Venn diagram of like writer bro who likes sports. Yeah, me too. And uh, sport, uh, football season is upon us. So uh, for all you writer bros or non-writer bros out there, um, here it comes. Bobby uh, Hilliard, uh, Robert Dean, thank you so much for uh, stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, Robert Dean, for talking to me about the Johnny Manziel documentary and also about Quarterback, both of which are streaming on Netflix. Thanks to Matthew Ehrlich for talking to me about the new season of And Just Like That, which is airing on Max. And also thanks to Daniel Cohen for talking to me about Telemarketers, one of my favorite TV shows of the year, also airing on Max. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I'm calling you from the New Jersey Fraternal Order of Police. Your donation will help us give money to the families of fallen officers. I hope I can put you down for a $55 gold membership. We will send you a sticker. We will protect you from harm, and I will talk to you soon. Original Production.